0: Friends, this is Dr. Zev Neuwirth, and I am so excited to share the first podcast of the 2022 fall season. The podcast episode you're about to hear was actually recorded in the early part of this summer, about two and a half months ago. In the interim, Dr. William Schrank, our amazing guest on this episode, has stepped down from his role as the chief medical officer at Humana. Dr. Schrank was in this role for the past two years and just this past month, assumed a new position as Senior Advisor at Humana. As always, I hope you are deeply informed and greatly inspired by what you are about to hear. Hello, I'm Zeb Neuwirth and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives new ideas and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, we have the unique, special opportunity today to be speaking with Dr. William Schrank, the chief medical officer of one of the largest payviders in American healthcare as well as one of the most innovative companies in American healthcare today. And I am speaking about Humana. Now, before we dive in, I'm going to make a request of you. If you're listening to this podcast and you find value in it, I'd like you to share it with your colleagues and also please rate it on whatever app you're using. Rating the podcast actually helps others find it. Now, to those of you who've already begun doing that as well as to those of you who are going to rate this podcast immediately after listening today, I greatly appreciate you taking a moment to spread the podcast and more importantly, to spread the word on creating a new healthcare. Will, I am so, so pleased and excited about the opportunity to speak with you. I know how incredibly busy you are and can't thank you enough for taking the time to speak with us today.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Zev. It's great. Uh, I love that you do this and that you're you're trying to be an, an active participant in this discussion and eager to help out in any way.
0: Well, thanks, thanks, Will, and I think I think you nailed it. it. It's all of us trying to move this forward. Before we dive in, Will, I wanted to give you an opportunity. I've known you for many, many years. Followed your career. Just amazing your background. Could you just share a few highlights from your education and your your career path?
1: I'm happy to, but I think you um, you know we're going to need to work on your setting expectations. I think uh, <laughs> not you know, at all. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I'm an internal medicine doc. I did a health services research fellowship. And then I, was, I, I, I worked as so I did my residency at Georgetown and I did my fellowship at UCLA and then spent a bunch of years in academia. So I had a faculty position at Harvard Med School. My clinical um, activity was at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And I focused my research on improving prescription drug use. And then um, I followed my wife to DC. She took a job in the Obama administration and I found a role at CMMI when it was first being stood up. And I led the evaluation group at CMMI for a couple of years and had the great, great honor of participating in the development and the evaluation plan of a bunch of the important new, now not so new payment models that we're relying on to drive better outcomes better experiences, better health, like ACOs and comprehensive primary care initiative, and bundle payments. My biggest partner when I was in academia was CVS Caremark. Uh, and when I left the government, I spent a couple of years working at CVS, really focused on creating partnerships between retail pharmacy and mini clinics and retail clinic settings with risk-bearing health systems to try to figure out how to create partnerships and communities to best align around chronic disease management and and population health principles. After that, I worked at UPMC, Pittsburgh, and I served as the chief medical officer of the health plan there with great opportunity to work with a leading academic health system to create deeper partnerships between payer and provider. And then three years and a couple months ago, I started at Humana as the chief medical officer. So it's been a bit of a circuitous route, and frankly, not one that anyone would map out intentionally, um, but I feel very grateful to have had each of those experiences.
0: First of all, I think you're way too humble, and it's an amazing career path, and I can see how you're bringing all of that background to bear here in, in your current work. So given your background, it's just amazing in academia, in research, and evaluation science, and then at CMS, CMMI, looking at payment models, working with CVS and CVS Caremark, and retail there, and then UPMC and the health plan, and now at Humana. Before we dive in, and, and I'm really, really chomping at the bit to ask you about some of the programs and, and with a specific focus on, on senior care to kick it off, but before we, we go there, as you sort of step back and again, given your broad background, when you look at American healthcare today, what are some of the major fundamental core problems slash challenges in healthcare and what do you what do you think are the real core issues at hand that need to be addressed? I'm just really curious again given your breadth of experience and knowledge.
1: Well we could easily spend an hour just on that question. There's so much opportunity for us to reframe, reorganize, improve the health system. But if I were to try to just pick one thing and it particularly from my Current perch and our my current focus, which is caring for seniors. Mm-hmm. It's really, and it's funny, you wouldn't think that the big this would be the most important innovation in our healthcare system, but I really think that today mm-hmm. the most important thing we need to innovate and fix is just to make the system more seamless and less fragmented. I have two aging parents that. Both require a lot of healthcare and they're very well-educated. They're incredibly smart, wonderful, talented people. And it is really, really, really hard for them to navigate the health system. And I get involved and it's really hard for me to help them. Mm. Frankly, when you think about the, the typical senior who has multiple medical problems, he spent an extraordinary amount of their time dealing with a healthcare system that is not integrated. That, that where the parts don't talk to each other, where patients do not, you know, they get asked the same question by every healthcare provider along the continuum, and they're not treated like people, and frankly, sort of a, a constellation of illnesses than they are as humans, mm-hmm. and creating a that fragmentation, that lack of person-centeredness in care, I think, uh, at its core is the biggest challenge that we face.
0: Yeah, well, thank you for honing in on that issue. So given that, and, and in terms of outcomes of care, and I, I, I couldn't agree more with you, and I think the literature supports what you're saying, this issue of the fragmentation of care, I would frame it up as we have a sort of generic model of primary care. I'm curious what you think about this. This is kind of my my take on it. We have this generic model of primary care that is made for some sort of, average patient, maybe mild, maybe moderate, you know, someone in their 30s or 40s, one or two crying, but it's not customized. We haven't segmented care and said, listen, there's a segment of the population that has a different set of needs and requirements. And I'm just curious if you see it that way, or if you, if you would frame it up a different way.
1: Well, uh, I, I couldn't, I couldn't possibly agree with you more. And that's, I'm probably getting ahead of myself a little bit but that's really one of our central focuses. Mm-hmm. At Humana is this belief that we can deliver a primary care that really meets the needs of seniors as people. Mm. So we have we operate today it's 214 senior focused primary care clinics they're all purpose built they all only care for seniors. Everyone has uh, employs a team based approach with pharmacists, care managers, uh, social work, that all work together with primary care, with the physician, daily huddles, um, a focus on behavioral health to try to really meet the holistic needs of our patients. The, the, that orientation, um, that focus on not kind of cranking through as many patients as you can see in a day, in a day but really a focus on taking as very good care of the population that you're responsible for has been really rewarding to see both from the perspective of providers that feel like their work is much more aligned with the reason they went to medical school or the reason they went to nursing or pharmacy school. And patients, that care is a lot more seamless when all of the participants are there either on site or virtually available at that visit. Um, and focusing on the whole constellation, the whole, the whole, the whole sort of broader set of, of needs, social, behavioral, and physical of each patient on every visit. So I do believe that there is a there is a, a future for primary care and seniors that is starting to come into focus. That's different than how you know we trained Zev, mm-hmm. and it will serve our, it will serve patients much 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 better.
0: We had primary care physicians or, or other administrative leaders on, uh, who are listening to this call, and they might be asking the question, well, you started to describe the model a bit, but what would be some of the point by point, some of the differences, the distinctions between the generic primary care model, because I, I think that's one of the conversations is one of the questions is, well, couldn't we couldn't we retrofit or, or augment a general primary care clinic to do this? So I'm curious as some of the major differences or distinctions between a general primary care clinic, as you put it, how, how we were taught to practice and how we practiced and in, in general primary care versus what you're talking about for seniors.
1: Yeah, well, sort of the, the adoption or the, the uptick in value-based care, I think has just changed this conversation dramatically. Mm. So, our owned clinics and whole ecosystem of primary, of senior focused primary care that you've seen out in the marketplace the IORAs, mm-hmm. Oak Streets, uh, Chen Med, we all focus on seniors. We all mm-hmm. orient around taking full risk for the population that we serve. And because these are generally high cost and high need patients, changes the calculus, the financial calculus of how you own and operate and and run a practice. The practice is less focused on trying to sort of generate our views. The practice is really focused on the best health, the best outcomes, the least use of unnecessary emergency or acute, uh, acute health services really a focus on the on the the very specific needs of every patient in the population that we serve. It's a much more proactive model. It's a model that's really focused on under, seeing patients much more frequently and trying to anticipate needs rather than react and respond to needs. So our the physicians that work in our in our primary care practices have the same size panel, as I had as a primary care doc at the Brigham t- when I was working only one and a half days a week. Mm-hmm. It is really hard if you're taking care of seniors and um, young commercially insured patients. and It's very hard to create a model that allows you to care for all of those needs and to, to, to take care of seniors optimally. And this focus, this this sort of ruthless focus on meeting the needs of complex seniors, affords you the flexibility to build your practice in a very different way. It isn't cost effective to do that if you're caring for, you know, someone that doesn't have a lot of healthcare needs, and for mm-hmm. you're not getting a capitated payment. That's very that's, that, that the capitated payment is small because um, they're generally healthy in the first place. Mm-hmm. It's just an entirely different model, mm-hmm. and it's one that. I really wish that a model like this was available where my parents live. I just, I, I think it's, I think it's the model that, that more and more seniors, once they learn about and appreciate it, that they'll find that that's how they want to get their care.
0: I yeah, know that was super helpful. One aspect of it, you mentioned the number of clinics I, I've read recently of what sounds like a second investment. There was an investment that Humana made with a venture capital firm Previously, But there was now a $1.2 billion investment in these senior care clinics, which I, I think is uh, amazing and supports the points you were making in terms of your seriousness about this as an organization. And, and then the other part I read was that Kindred at Home, which is the largest home care company, I believe, in the country, which Humana had acquired previously also for just a tremendous investment. I, I, I'm recalling something like $8 billion. So to me, I read these things, and I'm thinking, oh my God, Humana has such a serious commitment around senior care. And most recently I, I read that Kindred is actually being brought into this CareWell brand. So it's now part of the same brand as your senior care clinics. And I'm thinking to myself that combination of that amazing segmented customized focus clinic for seniors, plus the ability to go into their homes is really just a a fantastic synergistic combination. I'm wondering if you you could speak to that and where you're going with that in terms of number of clinics and and just very, very curious about that vision.
1: Yeah, well, the vision, I think the vision is a really exciting one. And we are bringing together our primary care, our home care, and uh, our pharmacy under the same brand, Centerwell. The rationale is that in order to really serve our members, our patients well in communities. We do not wanna have this sort of series of isolated touch points or siloed touch points. We do wanna integrate as many of these services as we can. I think one of the things we've learned really quite vividly over the last couple of years during the pandemic um, is that patients, that Americans wanna be Want to have the, the freedom to, to sort of get care where they are. They don't necessarily want to come to brick and mortar facilities. Facility based care is, you know, I think increasingly going to be a less central way mm-hmm. that Americans get their care. And this idea of being able to bring together pharmacy, primary care, home care in communities and think more holistically about where patients should get there. How do we meet patients where they are? Provide patient-centered, consumer-centered care. Uh, deliver primary care at home when that's appropriate. Hospital care at home when that's appropriate. How do we make sure that primary care physicians do have good access to their patients between visits to the doctor, either virtually or with the assistance of someone of someone that's providing care in the home? You know, I come to this discussion with a great deal of humility that these transformations are considerable. And it's not as though um, you snap your fingers and suddenly you have a deeply integrated home primary care and pharmacy organization. This is gonna take a lot of work. And we have to learn our way to the sort of the optimal model of integration. I think we're asking the right questions and I think it is the right goal. And if we're able to really make meaningful progress, this is the kind of innovation that really will make experiences and how that comes better for for more patients.
0: Yeah. Again, just I'm so blown away by that vision and and also just the thinking, the strategy around that. I love that integration. I hadn't realized pharmacy was included in that. And like you said, home care, hospital at home, really. You know, it's really interesting. I, I I'm curious what you think about this. The the senior care and I've been working on a, a, you know, on a senior care strategy. And so this is a, an area that is actually a main part of my, my day job as well. Uh, to me, it seems like the senior care and strategy and the home-based care ecosystem, these are, these are almost like sister strategies. I'm I'm curious how you, how you see the relationship between those two. And maybe there's, there's another part as well.
1: I'm sorry. Another part of,
0: uh, just that that whole ecosystem, you know. I tend to think and I see pictures and and tend to think of things in, in terms of illustrations or diagrams. And so, for me, as I work on senior care, I see sort of a Venn diagram with senior care, and then another elliptical is 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 home based care because they they they're, they're almost like sister strategies. They're they're yeah. so closely related. And I, I'm just wondering, what does that slide look like in your mind?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I think it is a it's a Venn diagram where I believe that seniors place a great deal of importance in the relationship with a primary care doc and the primacy of that relationship is central. Once that relationship is in place and there's trust and understanding, there is so much more that we can do at home. And, uh, you know, I, I think we have a lot to learn in terms of how much, what's the, you know, I don't know what you call it, the union or the when you when you start creating that Venn diagram, exactly what the overlap looks like, mm-hmm. what 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 of the what primary care services can and should be delivered in the home? how do we how do we personalize it so that it's really right? It's meeting the needs for a broad array of uh, patients and the populations that we serve. So I think we're st- you know we're still early in this process of figuring out what that looks like, but the the diagram is the one you said. There is a diagram that says that, that shows that, pay, that seniors with complex chronic conditions will have a primary care doc, mm-hmm. a lot of their services are going to be delivered in the home, and that their medications, which are an incredible source of both complexity and also an essential way of treating many or most of their conditions, will be really thoughtfully um, managed in combination by who, the primary care doc and whoever is uh, meeting and, and, and supporting that patient at home.
0: One of the things you said a moment ago and and in given your background in in research and evaluation science, that notion of asking questions, it's, I love that, by the way, I just respect that so much about you. It's, It's not a knowing mindset as much as it is a learning mindset. And I learned as I was doing some of the background research leading up to this conversation with you. That I believe you and your team have established a, a bunch of divisions at Humana: a clinical solutions division, a rapid learning division, a social equity division, and a digital health division. And as you were talking, I was thinking, "Oh, is this?" I, I, I'd wanted to ask you this question about about all of them, quite honestly. But that that rapid learning division, really, really curious about is is that what you're talking about, or or, or yeah. what? what it, yeah. Well,
1: you know, I think I think this is. It's a challenge to to sort of operate and to develop and operate uh, strategy and programs at scale. And there, you can err on the side of going too fast and not studying the impact of your outcomes and scaling something that really doesn't work. You can make a mistake by testing something, determining that it doesn't work, even if the idea is good, but the implementation was problematic. There's a lot of ways that we can make mistakes as we test and learn our way into determining what to scale. And we have been really, really thoughtful. And I'm very proud of the work of the whole team to be really, really thoughtful about a systematic process to create rapid learning. It allows us to be really thoughtful about what we test and who we're targeting and create very specific assumptions on, around the, the, the kinds of results we'd have to see, both in terms of engagement and in terms of clinical results that we'd be able to see in the samples that we're testing to be able to make decisions. We're really thoughtful about leading indicators, yeah. indicators around, you know, in the, in the, whether it's engagement, participation, or just specific behaviors to better understand whether something has a possibility, a likelihood of working. Really thoughtful about you know, how, how to sort of scale up uh, a test so that it's the right size to be able to make determinations about the clinical impact uh, uh, of our interventions. And then use those, that process to make very thoughtful decisions about scaling our clinical innovation. I would say that, that that learning process is so key, so foundational to any uh, healthcare company that's trying to, if, I mean, I think if you're trying to, to change something as distal as a health outcome, you need a process like that to be able to really test and learn your way into the right, um, the right set of programs and interventions. So that's been a, a, a huge area of focus and effort for us at Humana
0: even in the name of that division, rapid learning, I think the key part is the rapid part. This is not slowing down progress. I've heard the criticism, too much strategy, too much analysis, let's just do something. But, but I think that notion of doing, but rapidly learning from it actually is much faster than just doing without learning.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I, you know, it's, it's also, it's interesting because this is not, I, I don't, this is certainly not work that's specific to Humana. I think we're, you know, across the industry. We're all trying to figure out how to set these thresholds around how you test and learn and make scaling decisions. And it's complicated because so many of us in the healthcare sector grew up learning that, you know, there's specific P values that Mm -hmm. determine significance. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, if you're gonna publish a paper in a high profile journal, you've gotta be at least 95% sure that you're, you're getting it right. If you're running a clinic or you're running a business and you have an argument, a belief that a, that a program is going to improve quality and outcomes, and there's really no reason to believe it's going to adversely affect outcomes, do you need to be 95% sure statistically to be able to make that decision about scaling? What if you're 80% sure? What if you're 75% sure? And how do we ultimately set those expectations? I think it's, it's a challenge for the federal government. I, you know, at CMMI, it's one of these really hard, deci- hard decisions in terms of clarifying what thresholds satisfy the criteria to scale a successful program in CMMI. And it's some of those thresholds have been really limiting in terms of CMMI being able to scale successful programs. I think we as an industry there's a lot for us to learn and a lot for us to sort of improve on around this, this rapid learning principle that will help us move faster and implement new innovations much more rapidly. And um, you know, it, it is frustrating, I think, that there are a lot of good ideas out there that don't get implemented as fast or as broadly as they should. And, and I think some of these threshold questions are at the core of those, of that delay. And I'm hoping um, that you know, more and more energy and effort is being applied in this area to start being much more proactive or and objective and intentional about setting thresholds at the outset of a test so you can make really good decisions about how to alter the program and, and make it better and then ultimately make decisions about scaling it.
0: Yeah, that, that was actually really, really helpful to hear you really unpack the reality of that challenge. Your digital health division and in Again, in in the context of senior care, just curious how you see that fitting in, where where that's going. And it's so fascinating because, again, you hear lots of critique and criticisms about should we be investing in virtual health so much? It's kind of rebounding and we're using it less. And I think I, I get the sense people don't understand the inflection that digital is going to make in healthcare. And so I'm curious to hear how you're thinking about it and the importance of it, the impact, maybe even an example of how you're using some of that.
1: Yeah, you know, the, the, um, we've often said that, or I've often thought that healthcare, the healthcare system moves really slowly. And during the pandemic, that obviously just wasn't true. There was this, the, the amazing, amazing adoption of telehealth over a matter of months exceeded I think everyone's expectations of what, of what was possible. And a lot of our concerns about seniors' ability to adopt and use telehealth were addressed. And essentially, we are convinced otherwise, that that seniors can adopt, will adopt, and will value and appreciate the use of telehealth services, virtual services. Our job at this point is not to react to what you know, sort of, and follow the trends, our, go- our job is to define what we think is optimal care and to do that through understanding the needs of our patients. And our patients are demanding a more patient-centered, simple, seamless uh, set of interventions and solutions. If telehealth is still too complicated for, for some seniors, it means we're doing it wrong means we're not giving them the kind of service that they need and deserve. It is unthinkable to me at this point that we're not gonna increasingly use more and more virtual services. And seniors are using virtual services for every feature of their lives. It's how they're watching movies. It's how they're buying retail products. It's, it's a matter of us making it easy and seamless. And it's our job to figure that out for them and to support them. I think that we are um, we are definitely in the early stages of what will continue to be a true disruption in how care is delivered and a pre- and, and sort of valued uh, as we get more and more person-centered, convenient care delivered in the home, sometimes through people and sometimes virtually, and sometimes some combination of both. Uh, and that's only only gonna accelerate.
0: Building on that, one of the aspects of digital is the analytics. And I'm thinking even you were talking about within seniors, the notion of some have more complexity, there's there's risk stratification. To me, it seems like there are many, many areas where sort of digital, and I'm, by that, I mean the broader use of that word in terms of analytics, home monitoring devices, et cetera. It seems to me that a really big advance in care will be our ability to and you used this word before, to proactively identify who's getting in trouble, who's getting worse before it happens, before they end up having to call you know, EMS and, and show up in an emergency room or before they, they have that stroke or that COPD exacerbation or, or that heart failure exacerbation. I'm curious about your, your thoughts about that.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think that's the true future of personalized medicine. I think it's less around Understanding everyone's genome, I think it's more about leveraging data and understanding patients' preferences for channels, for communication style, Mm -hmm. in terms of managing health. And the analytics have to capture all of that. They have to help us better anticipate risk, but they also have to better help us anticipate who's going to react to which outreach, who's most likely to change their behavior with specific interventions. And you know, we're seeing this level of analytic uh, development in many other industries. And we are working on it really, really hard in healthcare. There's a, ho- a whole bunch of startups, there's a whole bunch of incumbents that are all working really hard to better understand the needs of our members, that what, are, what their key risks, what the, mem- what the key risks of each patient are, what the key personal barriers are of each patient. Mm. Uh, what their preferences are for how they want to be messaged to, and the ways in which they're ultimately going to um, change their behavior to reduce the likelihood of an adverse event. This is another one where I think we're still, you know, we're we're still in the earlier phases, but there is uh, a massive amount of change and improvement and innovation on the way.
0: Mm-hmm. That was incredibly well said, thank you. One of the areas, you you have a social equity division as well, the first question and maybe it's an obvious one at this point but still i think important to ask and, and emphasize why is humana why are you and your team so focused on social equity why is that so important in healthcare today
1: well i think we've been focused on it for a long time mm-hmm. but more implicitly and not enough explicitly so we've had um and this large this way predated me. There was this program called the Bull Goal Mm -hmm. that my boss, that Bruce Broussard, that's a term he coined in 2015, initially started with just a handful of markets. Now there are over 20, where we have deep relationships and markets with community-based organizations, with the places that our members congregate, with providers and local governments to try to create some social fabric and address the health-related social needs of all of our members in in those communities. And we've see, we in those communities, we survey all of our members routinely about their self-reported healthy days, both their physical health and their mental health using the CDC healthy days uh, survey instrument. And we've been in like other like other MA plans in particular, we've been invested heavily in trying to understand how to how to, address health-related social needs as a central strategy to improve the health of the members we serve. It's funny to think, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily think that health plans should should be playing this role, mm. but in an environment where I think we all agree that we're wildly over-indexed on health spending and under-indexed on social service spending, it's, it's health plans that are at risk for the cost, the total cost of the care, the healthcare costs of the, of the populations we serve, that have the ability to sort of redistribute those dollars upstream. And if we can make a business case, we can, we can redistribute those dollars to address social services, social needs, and offset um, health services and healthcare costs. So we've been doing this for a long time, but haven't really been measuring Racial disparities, other specific characteristics of our members, and how how those how disparities have been uh, impacted by the interventions, by the um, by the partnerships, by the investments in communities that we've made. And I think the pandemic really helped shine a light on the fact that it's not enough. It is not enough to um, invest in communities and implicitly hope that, that disparities are being reduced. And we have an obligation to the members we serve, the communities we serve, to be much more intentional about capturing in much more specific information about the characteristics of our members and to be much more intentional about driving reductions and disparities by those immutable characteristics. And, um, You know, I, the goal here is not to create something different on the side, but to really integrate that, that lens of health equity into the work we're already doing and bring another layer of richness of both measurement and intervention and cultural sensitivity to the work we're doing already to really foster greater impact Mm. in terms of reducing disparities and promoting health
0: equity. I really appreciate that approach, that integration. We have just a, a few minutes left here, short few minutes. Wanted to switch gears with you and sort of step back and, and, and ask you a question about not only Humana, but sort of the larger ecosystem and market where we're seeing what traditionally were insurance companies in, in healthcare over the past many, many years. It's, it's not one or two years. It's quite a few years that there's been a, a shift and, and, and quite honestly, a public declaration that traditional insurance companies, payers, so called payers, are really becoming payers, providers, as well as having other assets and pharmacies and PBMs and whatnot, analytics. So, I'm curious if you can, in my mind, I almost, I know people talk about payviders. I almost think about payers now or payviders as sort of the next generation integrated delivery networks, sort of next gen IDNs. And I'm just curious about how you see that direction if you can, speaking to some of the advantages or disadvantages that these payers have versus traditional healthcare systems, do you have a picture in your head of how you see this ecosystem evolving in American healthcare? And again, I think that there's lots of ways to ask that question and approach that question. I think implicit in in who you are and in your role and what I believe in in humanist culture, you're looking at it through the lens of, of how do we optimize care for Americans and American healthcare. And I think I hear that in you, and I've seen that throughout you and your career. But I am curious about how you put this together.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I think we're all fighting, fighting. You know, we're all sort of fighting the same for the same cause here. Providers and Zev, you're a great example of this. Are thinking much more broadly about how to manage the populations that you serve. You're thinking much more broadly about how to use leverage your own the data you have access to and create partnerships and communities to keep people healthy in the first place. And frankly, that's a change historically from the role of providers who were more focused on treating the sick. And increasingly, we're thinking about providers' role as keeping people healthy. You know, I think health insurers, and in particular with the adoption of Medicare Advantage as a, as a sort of a way that seniors get care. Mm-hmm. It, Medicare Advantage was the essentially the beginning of value-based care, where you have a, an organization that takes risk for the population that they serve and forces an organization to think much more holistically about keeping people healthy in the first place and really trying to manage the needs of, of each individual in a population to help them on their better trajectory of health. You know, I think payers, providers... Everyone along the continuum, at different levels of engagement and different levels of commitment, are trying to figure out how to better address the breadth of needs of the populations we're all serving. So I don't think this is specific to Humana or to payers. I think everybody's sort of everyone's leveling their gaze at this problem: how do we manage populations better? And we're all just sort of going at it in different ways, and we're all going at it with different levels of investment and commitment and levels of engagement. I'm really proud of the approach that Humana is taking because I do believe that there's a deep commitment to leveraging the breadth of resources that we have, acquiring resources where necessary, partnering with resources in the community where we where it doesn't make sense for us to acquire, creating financial incentives with a whole host of provider organizations in our network to try to create that sort of approach that delivers better care, better experiences, better outcomes at lower costs for the populations we serve. I, I think it would be um, hubris to suggest that like, we're doing something that's really different. Mm-hmm. We're doing it we're, we might we're taking a bit of a different strategy, but I think everybody's really focusing on these very same problems. And we all recognize the really critical need of managing populations better, keeping them healthier in the first place, leveraging all of our resources better to uh, avoid unnecessary bad things from happening rather than treating them once they do.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. And I think you gave me credit for participating in that. And I think uh, I think what you were meaning is Atrium Health, where I, I work in a large healthcare system. I think we agree with your commitment around uh, healthcare disparities, social equity, population health it's pretty i have to i have to say it's it's really impressive to be part of it and to really observe some of the inflections and changes that have been happening over the last few years in terms of what we're focusing on and and the investments we're making in the community it's speaking to issues like global warming and what we can do to mitigate that as well. A couple of quick questions. If you were going to give a critical piece of advice, recommendation, you're now speaking to CEOs and senior leadership C-suites from hospital systems across the country. Do you have a a message, recommendation?
1: I would, just one word, I would just say partner. Hmm. The complexity of of the healthcare system and of the challenges that every individual complex patient faces is meaningful and no one can solve all those problems we certainly can't humanity atrium no one can this is really about us all rolling up our sleeves together and figuring out how we work together
0: that was fantastic i think that's such a great word it, not such a great word it is i almost think it's it's beyond critical i think it's absolutely necessary if we're going to achieve what we need to achieve for the american public in terms of health care better health if you now are in an auditorium and you're speaking to the leadership at the federal and state levels, HHS, CMS, CMMI, Medicaid programs across country, is there a recommendation piece of advice for those leaders?
1: For them, I would just focus on practicality. I think ideology in the policy world interferes with good policymaking. So the more we focus on what Makes a difference for patients, what makes patients healthier and makes their lives better, rather than focusing on what's consistent with ideology, is the job of and the goal for those folks that are leading our key institutions. And I say that with great, great respect for those institutions, having worked at, you know, working within the system at some point. There's so, so much good that HHS, CMS does for so many people every single day. But the more we focus on practicality, what really makes people's lives better, the better impact, the more impact those organizations will
0: have. I was going to ask you a, a final question, which is clearly, uh, well, you're a different thinker, you're a different doer. It's just really awesome to hear your thoughts and listen to your accomplishments at Humana. Do you have some basic tenets or heuristics that you adhere to? Are there some values or principles that are just so core? And I've, I ask it, but at the same time, it it sounds like you've already answered some of that question. But I, I I did want to ask the question.
1: Yeah, well, I think you're giving me way too much credit. I've been a part of some really great teams, but hard to know. But yes, thank you. It's very generous of you to say. I'd say the only that, that for me, it's just really been about a sense of purpose and mission. I feel really lucky as a American, as a you know, as a person to. Uh, have had as much opportunities I have I'm healthy and I'm free and I feel like every day I I'm just committed to and focused on that purpose and I know that so many so many of so many folks don't have those luxuries and it, that you know sort of profound belief that we can do better I think sort of guides me but I don't know that's a hard one to answer I'm
0: no sure. you no, sure I you. did I, I, quite honestly, I think you've answered the questions throughout the entire time we've been talking. I'm just going to say, well, I, I think leaders are really, really important in healthcare and we have some great leaders and I think we need more leaders like you. I, I hope that people are learning from you and learning from what you and your colleagues are doing at Humana, because I think it's a really important lesson and a really important direction. So I just want to thank you, Will, Dr. Schrank.
1: Uh, <laughs> I really appreciate the time today. I appreciate the chance to hear your thoughtful questions and and talk with you and learn from you. And uh, I really appreciate that you're doing this and you're kind of putting these key questions on the map on the radar screen for so many people and raising the, the visibility of the importance of some of these questions. So thank you for all you do.
0: Thanks, thanks, Will. And as I do every episode, Will, as you know, I, I conclude by thanking all the folks out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients. And I love, by the way, Will. You kept on coming back to patients and what people need, and just I love that touchstone. And again, it's so important. I think the folks who are listening to this recognize this. I just want to say again, truly appreciate all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients is so important to individuals to families to communities and to our society my friends this is Zeb Newworth on creating a new health care until next time be safe and be well